Welcome back to the program. As we listened to election results last week, the one thing we heard over and over again is the slicing and dicing of the electorate into generations, income, ethnicity, etc. Certainly, we hear repeatedly about the complexity and challenges of today's multi-generational workplace. With all of this talk about division, it's perhaps worth looking at what might unite us. There is an answer you might find surprising, and that is technology. To paraphrase the old orange juice commercial, technology, it's not just for millennials anymore. In fact, the use and strategic advantage of technology may be the most unifying force for all of us. We're going to talk about this today with my guest, Tom Kalopoulos. He's the founder of the Delphi Group, which for 25 years has been providing thought leadership at the intersection of business and technology to global organizations. He's the author of nine previous books, and it is my pleasure to welcome him here to talk about his latest, The Gen Z Effect, The Six Forces Shaping the Future of Business. Thomas Kalopoulos, thanks so much for joining us. Jeff, it is my pleasure. Thank you. Great to have you here. It is in some ways counterintuitive to be looking towards technology as this great unifier that really works across generations. Talk a little bit about the evolution of that as, as a concept. Yeah, that, so that's a great question to begin with, because with any book, there's an inspiration that sort of gets you going down that intellectual path. With the Gen Z effect, the, the intellectual inspiration was really in sharing stories about my own experience as a parent and as a business owner, about what it was like to experience the behaviors and the attitudes of these kids that were coming into the workplace and that I was raising myself. I've got two Gen Zers that I'm raising. And as I began to tell those stories, Jeff, it was amazing to me. Of all the things I would talk about, all the big ideas I would share with people, that was the one idea that everyone wanted to talk more about. It seemed as though we all have some set of experiences around these generational issues, especially as they relate to recent history, the millennials and the wires, the millennials, the, uh, the Xers, uh, and now Gen Z. So I began to, to, to work with that as a concept, and I thought to myself, well, what are we missing here? Why are we not able to get our minds around the challenge? And it finally occurred to me, the problem is that we're thinking generationally. And generational thinking is not a given. It's kind of like the diamond engagement ring. It's a construct of the last century. We've been marketed this notion of generational gaps and generational chasms, and we just accepted it as though it were, uh, you know, a law of nature. And it's not. Even Margaret Mead, who was one of the folks that's often credited with popularizing the term generation gap, she despised the term. She didn't like the term. She felt it was very divisive. And that's when it, it occurred to me, as I began to look at these generational chasms, that they are the reason, in, in so many cases, that organizations, social institutions, even political institutions, don't work well together. We drive this wedge, we call it a generational wedge, and then we simply accept that we cannot cross that divide. And the premise of the book is you can cross it. In fact, we are crossing it. 85-year-old grandmothers are using iPads to talk to their two-year-old grandsons. It's being done. We're living it today. So let's develop a post-generational way of thinking, and let's look at what the forces are that are driving us towards what you, as you said, you said it very well, towards unification as opposed to separation and, and divisiveness. And that's the promise of the book. If we get beyond generational divides, we can probably take on some of these enormous problems and challenges that face us globally in all areas of business as well as economics and 
and social institutions as well. Of course, one of the, the things that grows out of this in so many areas is a sense of creative destruction and the disturbance yeah. of incumbents in particular areas that have a vested interest in keeping that divide alive. Absolutely. I, you know, I love this notion, you know, Schumpeter's notion of creative uh, destruction is, is, is one of the most valuable uh, frameworks I think we can bring to any institution, be it a for-profit business, be it a political institution or, or, or a social institution or a non-profit. And the reason for that is that really great ideas, the ideas that are the most disruptive initially are the ones that changes the most individually, I think, and, and socially. But we don't tolerate those well because of what you said, because they're a vested interest. And I'll give you a great example of this, a very concrete example, which is one of the most fascinating ones we talk about in the book, intellectual property. Uh, we are obsessed today as a society in the developed world with the notion of intellectual property rights and, and protection of intellectual property. And we understand, we all understand the basic premise and the concept behind that. And these were laws that were put into effect to help uh, generate innovative ideas and to give the right to those ideas to someone to profit from them and as a result to generate more ideas. It was a great motivator. But you know what amazes me, when I talk to my graduate students and my undergraduate students, they are completely against the notion of patent protection in the vast majority of cases. They accept that there are some areas where patent law does make sense, but they fundamentally believe the system is broken. And when we go out and ask people at large, we did a survey of close to 1,000 people at this point across all demographics, and 74% of them came back and said to us, the U.S. patent and trademark system uh, is absolutely broken. It's a significant overhaul. 20% told us it is so broken that it will eventually be obsolete. So we see vested interest clearly around patent protection. We see companies spending more on defending their patents than on R&D. That, to me, is an indicator that we have something systemic uh, that we need to solve, and much of that will be solved in this new set of behaviors and attitudes uh, towards transparency, towards openness, because these kids, we discount their attitude by saying it's naive. When they grow up, they'll realize how valuable patents are. But what we don't get is that where they see the value is in the speed of being able to bring an idea to market quickly and then develop on that idea collaboratively. They collaborate insanely, and they realize that to do that, you have to give up some of that intellectual property. So that's, that's one example we talk about extensively in the, in the book, and I think it's a, it's a great uh, case study of how systemically we've built these vested generational interests into our, into our societies and in our businesses and how... Uh, disruptive, that change is going to be. And it will be very disruptive, let's face it. One of the other points that we overlook oftentimes in thinking about technology as being cross-generational is that so much of the technology itself and the framework, the underpinnings, the social underpinnings of that technology were created by previous generations, were put in place by boomers. It's like thinking that a toy company can only be run by a child. <laughs> that's a great. That's a great example. Uh, but I'll tell you, what, what fascinates me uh, as I look at this in practice, Jeff, is that it's the boomers most often that bash the millennials, and we bash them for using the technologies that we created. I mean, we built many of these devices that they are now using to, uh, to, uh, to socialize and, and to collaborate and to connect, uh, and yet we're so dismissive of those behaviors. And I, I say this constantly, the technology is easy to get. We always understand the technology. 
what we don't get is the way the behavior will change. If you want to see behavior change, watch the way a child plays. So you talk about the toy store. Um, you know, put a child in a toy store, and you've got the best example of how that toy will probably be used in practice. And it may be very different than the way it was going to be used in concept on the, you know, on the blackboard, on the whiteboard when it was first when it was first designed. So my point to people is that while we built these technologies, we didn't build the behaviors. We only built the tools. Sit back and take a close look at the behavior, and that leads you to better understand where the value in that technology really is. But we are so consistently dismissive of the behavior. Uh, and I think that's a big mistake. Uh, it's a mistake that we make because we get attached, very attached, to the technology and, and our anticipated use and application of the technology. And that's never the way it works out. The behavior is always very different. When Motorola introduced the first, you know, the, the Motorola brick, that, that famous, uh, you know, two-pound telephone that was about the size of a, of a brick, didn't weigh quite as much, but pretty close to it, the pundits projected that they'd be about by the year 2000, about uh, 10 million, and the outside, outside prediction was 100 million cell phones globally in use, not just by Motorola, but all cell phones. Uh, today, we've got 7 billion uh, cellular devices enabled globally. So to go from 100 million to 7 billion is not a rounding error. What it is is a fundamental inability to understand and appreciate the impact of behavior. And, and in the book, we focus so much on this issue of behavioral change over just technological change because that's where the real value is ultimately is in the behavior the other thing that is layered on top of that that you talk about is one the declining cost of all this technology and two the design component which looks at the simplicity which allows it to be effective on a cross-generational basis yeah that's what we call slingshotting we have a whole chapter in the book dedicated to this slingshotting is i talked about the 85 year old grandmother that's slingshotting slingshotting is is someone who swore they would never touch a computer, uh, you know, and it has not gotten on the laptop, doesn't know what a desktop is, yet they are somehow integrating this touch-based device into their lives and doing so seamlessly. That's slingshotting because, number one, it's, it's cheap. Uh, number two, it's, it's simple. There is no learning curve. There is no manual. If a technology gadget comes with a manual, then it's fundamentally broken to begin with is the attitude of, of Gen Z. But number three, and number three is very important, not only is it cheap and not only is it simple, but number three, I need it in order to be able to live my life. It becomes a necessity. So to communicate with my grandchild, I have to adopt this new behavior. Uh, for me to communicate with my kids, I ha I've had to learn to, to text, and to text in a very effective way, I might add, because they respond to that. They'll never respond to my phone call. I, I talk to parents all the time. I, I tell them, if you're frustrated with the fact that your child doesn't socialize, um, maybe the problem is that you're not engaging with them at their level. We do that with infants, right? We get down on the floor, we play with them at their level. I think we need to do the same with Gen Z. We need to engage them on their terms. And once we do, we begin to get a, a sense for the tremendous power uh, that these new behaviors have to connect us. And that's the benefit of slingshotting, is it allows you to connect socially in a way that otherwise you simply won't be able to. I joke sometimes, Jeff, I, I tell people, look, you don't have to do this. All this is a choice. None of this is a mandate. You don't have to be Gen Z. It is, it is a choice, not just a birthright. And if you choose to retire to some insular Tahiti and, and uh, uh, watch the waves come across the shore for the rest of your life, then by all means, please do so. But that's not what I find. I find that people want to connect. 
They, they want to connect intellectually, they want to connect emotionally, and technology allows them to do that. And it's that connection, that unification that crosses the generational chasms. One of the things that we've heard repeatedly, and we do see some of this in, in polling data and, and in response to te- about technology, is fear that older generations, boomers in particular, have about technology and what it means, and fear of not being able to keep up. Well, uh, and that fear is justified, uh, because keeping up becomes, it requires more effort uh, as we age. I mean, a lot of studies have been done to, to show that our brains fundamentally don't like to be rewired the older we get. Uh, those neural pathways become, uh, you know, like the, like the, uh, the cow paths in Boston that have been paved over. They, they become permanent. So it does take more effort, and my counsel to a lot of people who are, you know, in their 50s or, 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 uh, or older is you have to maintain some level of discomfort in order to recreate those pathways. And you know what? We do this. As human beings, when we're faced with a crisis, we have to reconstruct those neural pathways. If we're faced with a, a traumatizing life event, maybe it's a death in the family, a, a critical illness, suddenly we have to challenge all the conventional notions we have around our value systems, around the way we live our lives. That's challenging those neural pathways. My point is, if we do that on an incremental basis, on a regular basis, challenge those neural pathways, adopt these new behaviors, don't uh, dismiss Twitter if you haven't ever used Twitter, Uh, don't dismiss uh, Facebook or Pinterest if you've never used uh, either one of those, Uh, and when you do, you'll notice that there will be some change to the way you think about the value proposition. It may not be grandiose, it may not mean that you suddenly become a social media maven, uh, but you will start to get a glimpse of the value and not just the threat of uh, of technology, which I think, unfortunately, all too often is is what you know we're first greeted by when we see a new technology is that is that threat. And slowly, we start to realize what the value proposition is. And, and by the way, if we look at this on a global scale, there are two billion Gen Zers that are going to be moving through the workforce, through our businesses, through our world. Uh, over the course of the next few decades. That's an enormously large cohort. Uh, so you can't tell me that their behaviors are not going to influence uh, the way that uh, all of us uh, behave ultimately. They will. So maintain that discomfort, and that way you don't get taken by surprise. That way it, it doesn't become traumatic when you finally have to make the shift to new technology or a new behavior. The corollary of that, which is one of the six forces that you talk about, is this same idea that education is really a permanent process, that the world becomes the classroom in a hyper-connected world? Yeah, we, we have this notion that we've grown up with uh, of, of the classroom preparing us for a lifelong career, and the reality is that our lifelong career is the classroom. Uh, it is, as you said, it, it is the corollary to what I was just talking about, that the level of constant discomfort can be alleviated if you become a student uh, on a daily basis. And it sounds very colloquial, but you know, you had a, a wonderful guest on not too long ago, Susan Fowler, who talks about, about this a little bit. We are motivated, ultimately, as human beings, by the process of connecting and learning. That is what we are. We are, we are all, to some degree, uh, sponges, observers of, of, uh, of events and behaviors and, and people. And that's a learning process. So it's not as though I'm suggesting that we do something here that's radically different. What I am suggesting is that we take a bit more disciplined approach to it. And with the advent of MOOCs, massively uh, open online classrooms, there's no excuse not to uh, learn for life. And to learn whatever discipline you may 
uh, you may want, not just those that uh, uh, you were taught in school, uh, in the classroom, but uh, those that you have a passion for. And that's a very, very powerful uh, way to look at life, I think, to have the, the option as you, uh, as you grow older to also grow wiser and, and to continue learning on a, on a daily basis. And by the way, this is, right now today, the developed world is about a billion people. Six billion people don't really have access to the kind of education we're talking about here, either at the K-12 through level, which we've done a pretty good job of globally in, in, in getting to a reasonable number of, of K-12 through eligible kids that are in K-12. through But at the college level, we're still at less than 30%. Uh, of eligible individuals in college that could be in college. What if all those folks, what if the other six billion all had a college education? What would that world look like? When you have 10 billion potentially uh, well-educated people across the globe, what does that workforce look like? And that's the real promise of, uh, of this whole notion of creating a world as a classroom, a personalized classroom that appeals to your interests and, and your passions. That, to me, is an incredibly optimistic view of the future. And that really is, education really is the arms race, ultimately. At a national level, uh, I think that's, that's where you, you win uh, competitively, if you can win at education. And now every nation will have the ability to educate its population. It's a very different world than the one we grew up in. Another aspect of this is the degree to which this problem, this need for post-gener- post-generational world, really is going to continue to be with us simply because of demographics, simply because of lifespans being extended, so that the the multi-generational workplace is not something that is of the moment, but something that's going to be here for a long time to come. Exactly, and that's we begin the book, in fact, with a conversation around that issue. We call it breaking generations. We are facing what uh, I can only characterize as the most significant demographic shift over the last 5,000 years. We've consistently, globally, had what's called a population pyramid, where you have a very broad base of youth and a very narrow uh, apex at the top of the pyramid. That classic pyramid shape defines the demographics of population globally. That's changed radically. We've gone from the notion of a pyramid to one of a dome to what we see evolving into a skyscraper. So by 2100, by the year 2100, uh, in every uh, five-year age band from zero through four up through 60 through 64, we will have, within one percentage point, the exact same distribution of population, about 6% of population will each of those bands. Uh, that's not a pyramid. That's a skyscraper. It's a silo. And that will force us to think cross-generationally because now, not only are we living longer, but we're working longer. Uh, when we ask people, are you going to retire, 30% say, I'll never retire. And that increases to 37% for 22 to 32-year-olds. And when you go under 20, well over 50% believe they will never, ever retire. So now you've got five, six, seven generations in the traditional sense of a generation in the workforce at the same time. Talk about creative destruction. What kind of a culture does that create? And that's what we have to prepare our businesses for in terms of our employees and our marketplace. And that's you know, part of what we come back to over and over again in the book. This is like staring down a tsunami. You can be academic about it. You can rationalize it. At the end of the day, it's not understanding the tsunami. It's getting the hell out of the way or learning how to ride the darn thing that's going to lead to survival. And that's what businesses have to do. We, we can no longer sit there and rationalize this. It's going to happen. It is happening. 
These are immutable trends, and we will have to learn to adapt to them. And it is not only in the workplace, although that's where we focused a lot of this conversation. You talked a second ago about the marketplace, and in fact, the the need for data and understanding both the, the similarities and differences in terms of the market and the way business needs to understand that. And that's what amazed us when we went out and talked to companies like Hyatt and, and Lowe's and, and Cisco. Uh, they get that, and they are moving far away from generational thinking and looking particularly at behavioral thinking. How do I understand the way my customer behaves? Because that's how I personalize their experience. Their age is a small piece of that. It always will be. We're not going to annihilate the science of demographics here. We're adding to it, and the dimension we're adding to it is a behavioral dimension. And Lois told us, it, I don't, you know, we don't really care what generation you fall into. What we care about is how do you behave. The better we understand that, then the more value we can add to the relationship that we have with you, the easier we can make your life. And by doing that, by personalizing your experience as a customer through understanding of your behavior, it actually makes it more pleasant to work with us. Now, I know what everyone's thinking when they hear that. Well, hold on. It's not necessarily pleasant today. It's kind of creepy. It feels a little invasive uh, when my behavior is being tracked. And my answer is yes, because we're just trying to figure out what it means to understand behavior. And that's going to involve uh, a lot of dysfunctional effort initially. But over time, I think what we're leading towards is a much more intimate understanding of the customer and therefore an intimate understanding of what value uh, really makes their life easier, more pleasant, uh, and, and makes us the brand that they want to work with. I'm going out to uh, uh, Minneapolis uh, tomorrow to talk to a bunch of retailers at a very large event focused on, on Gen Z, and the whole notion of the conversation will be uh, how do we understand behavior in a way that allows us to personalize the experience for the customer. The data is there. The data is there. But it's going to take us some time, I think, to really figure out how to use it effectively. Thomas Kalopoulos, he's the co-author of The Gen Z Effect, The Six Forces Shaping the Future of Business. Thomas, I thank you so much for spending time with us today. Jeff, it was my pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. We'll take a break. I'll be right back. <laughs> 